Our help is in the name of the Lord, creator of heaven and earth. Grace to you and peace from God, our creator, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise God in the heights. Praise God, sun and moon. Praise the Lord, all you shining stars. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and women, old and young together. Come, let us worship the Lord. Now that the gifts and celebration are completed, the reality of God entering into our world as one of us only more powerfully convinces us of just how broken and needy we are. We find it hard to even hold on to the hope, the peace, the joy, and the love that made its entrance only one short week ago. So let us pray. Emmanuel, God with us. In the frenzy of holidays, we rush about blindly, forgetting that in Christ we have seen our salvation, which you give freely to all. Forgive us for so quickly losing sight and restore our vision that we may truly see the gift of salvation born among us and tell the world of your good news. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Even when we do temporarily forget the true reason for the Christmas season and find our attention drawn to the other life concerns than Jesus, he does not do that to us. God sent Jesus into the world not to judge us, but to save us, to loving focus on making us and our world whole again. The great good news is this. In Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God. Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Lift up your hearts. Almighty God, you have poured upon us the new light of your incarnate word. Grant that this light, enkindled in our hearts, may shine forth in our lives through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The first lesson is from the book of the prophet Isaiah, the 61st chapter, beginning at the 10th verse through the 62nd chapter, ending at the third verse. The prophet rejoices in God's work of salvation, both for himself and all of Zion. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until her vindication shines out like the dawn, and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication, and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem 
in the hand of your God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord, the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and frost, stormy wind fulfilling his command. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted, his glory is above earth and heaven. This is the word of the Lord. The second lesson is found in the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke, the second chapter, verses 22 to 40. In Jerusalem, Simeon and Anna proclaim that this child is the Messiah. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came out into the temple, and when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, Now you are dismissing your servant in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. And the child's mother and father were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul, too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phineal of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived for her husband for seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of the God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. There were two sets of lections for this morning, the ones that are printed in the bulletin for the standard for this time, and the special ones for New Year's. And I looked at both sets of lections and wondered, is there any way to correlate these? And thought about them and discovered that there was indeed. Because although some of them speak of endings, they also speak of beginnings, particularly the ones that are specially designed for New Year's. Beginnings and endings, 
alpha and omega, of course, the beginning and the end. The lection that we read from the New Testament speaks of Simeon, Anna, and Anna, both faithful servants of God, both well advanced in age. Simeon is approaching the end of his life, but is promised that he will not die until he has seen the Messiah. Although the end of his earthly existence is in this lection, although it doesn't actually say it, presumably he was allowed to leave his earthly service soon after that. That's exactly what the words mean in the original language. He is asking to be dismissed as a slave is freed. Not that he is tired of life, but that he feels he has served and it is now time to serve in heaven rather than on earth. He has seen the beginning of the new creation, the new redemption, the new Israel. Likewise, Anna, who is of great age, the exact age is not important. Ages in the Old and New Testament are often more symbolic than literal, you know that. But again, someone who has lived through great changes and is approaching the end of earthly existence and the beginning of heavenly. The whole election speaks to that, to the end of the old age and the beginning of the new. The New Year's lections are much more explicit in that. The Old Testament is the famous passage from Ecclesiastes that was set to music, and I've forgotten by whom. Was it Kingston Trio? It doesn't matter. There's a time to be born, a time to die, and it goes on through that entire passage. A time to build up, a time to break down. And most of us know that passage, if not from the Bible, at least from the popular music. And it does speak, indeed, of things changing and a time for everything. The other passage is from the book of Revelation, the new heaven and the new earth, which is often read at funerals and should not just be reserved for the end of life, because it is also of promise of new things. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. The home of God is among mortals, and God will dwell with them. They will be God's people, and God himself will be with them. God will wipe away every tear, and death will be no more. The famous passage, it speaks of the hope and the newness. This is New Year's Day, a new day, a time when some of us make resolutions, most of which get ignored very quickly, because most of them are rather unrealistic. I will lose 20 pounds in the next two months. I will uh, budget my money more carefully. I will whatever. Most New Year's resolutions are grandiose in intent and verbiage and utterly unworkable. How much better it would be if we started with the smaller, more reasonable steps. I will reduce the size of the portions on my plate. When we go to a restaurant, I will only eat half of it, and the rest of it will go home with me for tomorrow. But it's no fun to make those small resolutions, is it? It's much more fun to be grandiose. Small steps are not nearly as much fun. The Revelation passage speaks to a persecuted and frustrated people and talks about hope of the new heaven 
and the new earth. The entire season of Christmas is a time of hope and new beginnings. There is the famous passage in Isaiah that talks about, I will behold, I make all things new. The former things are passed away, and I will remember the old no more. Those are very comforting words, because there are many things in the old order that we would like to forget, and many things in our lives, regrets, angry words, and such, that we wish we had not done. Part of New Year's is starting anew. In many cultures, you do just that. You sweep out the house and you have ceremonies for getting rid of the evil of the previous year. It often involves cleaning the house thoroughly, setting aside certain things, using candles and light to drive out the evil of the previous year. While Christians tend not to celebrate in that way, it is a good time to think about the new heaven, the new earth, and the new promises. Not so much in the future, as Simeon and Anna were looking toward their heavenly home, but right here and now. The new heaven and the new earth are to come, and yet they are here now. Now, we have a little trouble with that in English, because we don't have a tense that allows us to say something is, and yet something is to be. It either is now, in the present, or it is to be in the future. It can't be both, really, in English. In Greek, there's no problem. There's a special tense for that, which drives seminary students up the wall dealing with it. Actually, Greek as a language tends to cause great frustration among seminary students, but that's a whole other issue. Good commentaries and good Bible dictionaries are a great help in dealing with this translation into English, because Greek and English just do not translate in the same way. They're totally different languages. The new heaven and the new earth are to come, of course, the perfection, but they're also here. The kingdom of God is here and now, in spite of all of the mess that the world is in. Last week, we talked about the light that has come and the way the darkness could not snatch away the light. The darkness could not extinguish this light that God sent to us. The darkness cannot keep away the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. What does it mean to be a Christian living in both the future and the present? The hope of perfection, that new heaven and that new earth where there are no tears or crying or death or sickness or any of the other. What does that mean? Well, we know perfectly well that we're not going to be living in a world without death and illness and sickness. We know perfectly well that heart attacks and cancer and colds and flu and other things are going to be around. We do our best to deal with them and be healthy, but they're there. We know perfectly well that there will be death and there will be crying and there will be sadness. And that's the reality we're living in. Christians balance this reality of some of the crassness of life, as Doug pointed out in his Christmas Eve sermon, and the glory and hope of the glorious perfected future. Some of the glorious perfected future is there in the hope. We live with that. 
How do we bring this kingdom about? How do we deal with this? We can completely ignore it and become totally pessimistic, as has happened in parts of Christian history, and deal with the gloom and God's anger and the fury of judgment. The other lection for today was the separation of the sheep and the goats, the end of the time when Jesus separates those who have been faithful from those who are not, and the interesting response of the faithful, when, Lord, did we ever minister to you? We didn't see you, and of course the response, when you took care of the least of these, you took care of me, and the response of the unfaithful, when did we not minister to you? Judgment, that's also part, of course, of the new heaven and the new earth, something we don't like to speak about. In the meantime, here we are. We know the kingdom of God is here, but we also know the kingdom of God is coming. How are we going to live with this paradox? How do we bring about the kingdom of God, although we can't bring about the kingdom of God? God brings about the kingdom of God. It's more like, what can we do to help reveal to the world that the kingdom of God is here and now? I spoke of New Year's resolutions. What about some of making new beginnings? I don't know, maybe none of you have done this, but I know there are people that I have not always been as kind to as I should have been. And there are remarks that I have made that I should not have, sometimes intentionally hurtful and sometimes unintentionally hurtful. Sometimes, at least my mouth and probably most of humanity's, runs faster than the brain. And before we think about it, the remark is out. And if we're sensible, and sensitive, we look and we see the expression on someone's face to whom the remark was just addressed. And although it's only a fleeting expression and they do their best to hide it, we realize, oh dear, I really blew it with that one, didn't I? That remark really hurt. I don't know, but I'm sure that most of all of humanity have had that experience. There are probably in your family relatives that you're not as fond of as others. Most families have relatives that are difficult to get along with. Uh, I have my Aunt Cindy. Aunt Cindy is a perfectionist. I am not. Aunt Cindy likes to have the towels folded just so. I wash the towels, throw them in the dryer, and put them back on the towel rack. This will not do for Cindy. I have the cat's litter box in the bathroom. Cindy insists on washing the towels with hot water because they have been in the same room with the cat's litter box, even though the litter box gets cleaned every time it's used and the litter changed every day. Uh, Cindy insists that dishes be rinsed off with boiling water and so forth and so on. You can guess that Cindy was a head nurse at one point in her life. Cindy is not the easiest of relatives to get along with, and I must admit that she and I have had some words that are less than kind on my part, in which I have basically told her to mind her own business and butt out of mine. In this year, I am going to try to understand where she's coming from and not demand, try at least, that she not understand where I am coming from and where we are together, at least fold the towels neatly and let her run the towels in hot water and run hot water over the dishes. It's a small piece. 
This is a way of bringing the kingdom about, reconciling, making a new beginning, even with difficult people. Maybe some of you have neighbors that are not the best of neighbors. Now, those of us who live in the sixth ward and have student neighbors, it's sometimes very difficult to get along with some of these students. Some of us probably were not particularly good neighbors ourselves in our college years, but we won't go into that either. Another way is trying. We don't have to put up with total chaos. We don't have to put up with parties that go on until 3 or 4 in the morning that are loud. We don't have to put up with drunken vandalism. But we can set an example by picking up the litter in the street, which we do anyway. We can set an example by taking our trash cans in when the trash has been collected. And sometimes, some of the students actually seeing this begin to follow that example. This too can be a new beginning. So can talking as neighbor to neighbor with them sometimes. And many of these students, when they're sober, are marvelous people. It's just you get a large number of young people, for that matter, you get a large number of people of any age together around a beer keg, and common sense goes out, as you probably No, it's not just college students. The new beginning need not be massive takeovers of government. There have been plenty of those in this last year, and I suspect there will be more. The Syrian people are simply no longer putting up with what they have put up with for many years. We'll see what goes on. Our own candidates continue making total fools of themselves, And this is probably not going to stop. The kingdom of God and the new heaven and new earth are not going to change the political system. We can, however, live with it, recognize its folly, laugh at it when necessary, and take it seriously when it needs to be taken seriously. One of the ways, again, of bringing about not bringing about, but living in the kingdom and showing the presence of the kingdom. When you disagree with some of what goes on in Washington, in Trenton, and in your city councils, you can speak up. You can write letters. You can say to your senator, your congressman, your president, your mayor, your city council, I think this is wrong, and give good, coherent reasons for it. You don't want to be just a nuisance that constantly complains about things. But when there is a legitimate concern that affects Christian values, one of the ways that Christians do show the kingdom of God is letting these elected officials know that they are indeed servants of the people and of God. The kingdom of God and this new world are all around us. Sometimes we don't recognize it. Sometimes the darkness appears to snatch it away, as last week's lecture said. Sometimes there is so much going on that we're overwhelmed, and we think that the kingdom of God can't possibly have anything to do with this world. When we start thinking like that, we need to go back to the creation story before the fall and remember that the Spirit of God hovered and that in the creation story, God created things and found it good, and that included human beings. We need to remember that in spite of what humans do, 
in spite of original sin, which preachers have loved to preach on for years and years. As a child, I could never understand how a baby could be sinful. They can't do anything. Finally, my parents sat down and said, you don't remember what you were like as an infant, but you had colic and you screamed all night. And you didn't care if we didn't get any sleep. You still screamed. That's original sin, not caring about somebody else's concerns. I said, but I couldn't. I was six months old. They said, exactly. That's what original sin means. Oh, you mean no matter what we try and what age we are, we're going to sin. Exactly. Oh, great theological truth shown to young people. And yes, we are all sinful by nature. Even the innocent infant has anyone, and I'm seeing smiles in the back about infants and young children and how little concerned they often are with their parents' rights and the fact that the parent has to get up and go to work in the morning and that parents get tired and chasing after a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a toddler is exhausting. But we must not get mired in that. Yes, we're all sinful, but we're also all redeemed. And the new creation and the new redemption and the new start are here. We can all begin anew. We can let go those old things, those old regrets. Sometimes there are things in our past that we don't want to let go of. We hang on to some of those old regrets. I once made a very cruel remark to someone. I was about 10, and it still haunts me. And I am trying very hard to let it go because I am, that was many years ago. It still bothers me. I suppose it should bother me in the sense that I make sure I never make that remark again. It should not be eating at me, as it often does. I need to remember that God forgives that remark and all of our sins. That doesn't give us permission to go out and sin some more, but it does remind us that we should not allow previous sins, regrets, things done, things undone, things said, things unsaid. We need not let them eat at us and keep us from enjoying the new life, the new salvation, the new beginning. This year begins on a sunny start and somewhat warm. I hope that means it will be a sunny year for us and for the world. I hope and pray that some of the difficulties that this city, this state, this country, and the world are experiencing can be solved and solved peaceably. But even if they are not, there is still the new beginning and still the reminder that God makes all things new, makes over our sinful nature, and allows us to live in the image of God. Thanks be to God for this new beginning, and let us take hold of it firmly and grasp it and not let it go. Let us pray. Oh God, we have a new chance, a chance to let go of our old regrets, to let the former things pass away, to let those things that eat at our souls go, and to do better. Help us, O oh Lord, to remember that you forgive our sins, that they are washed away, and that we can start anew. 
remind us again and again that although our sins are scarlet, you make them white as snow. Amen.